development is actually the practice of revealing and manifesting what's inherent in the form of potential in any living entity. To develop anything is to sort of remove anything that isn't connected to its actual core potential and nature. What was the originating and creative impulse that caused permaculture to rise? And how do you sort of work forward from there? Greetings, everybody, and welcome on back to the Making Permaculture Stronger podcast, episode 30. 30 episodes. Seems like a lot. Wow. Today, I talk with Ben Haggard, who is a member of Regenesis Group, alongside Joel Glansberg, Bill Reed, who I've interviewed uh, in the past few months, um, and others. He's a close colleague of Carol Sanford's, and so he's part of this theme in recent times of exploring this body of work around living systems, thinking around regenerative design and development. And today's talk is a long way from disappointing and a long way from boring. Uh, I'm still kind of feeling the the waves of impact after the conversation, which was, I don't know, a week ago or something. And... Before we get into the chat, and I'm going to share some reflections on my experience, um, what what I got out of it at the end, I'll share a little bit about the general state of affairs with Making Permaculture Stronger. Phase 2 is on, as you know. Um, this conversation with Ben is extraordinary in the extent to which it meets me and the project uh, where we are at and gives us some very concrete stepping stones forward and a huge amount of clarity uh, increased resolution on questions that were already emerging, uh, directions that were already emerging. As you'll see as we go along, I'm currently halfway through the two-week intensive residential permaculture design certificate course that I co-facilitate annually as part of Variable Gardens, which shortens to veg, I know, never gets old. The uh, permaculture design consultancy education and edible landscaping business I've been running with my friend and colleague Adam Grubb for the last 10 years. This year is exciting for the permaculture course, the PDC. And then we've got six veg staff members alongside Adam and myself. Um, we have Gabby, Felix and Brendan and Jeremy. I mean, there's this lovely um, energy of the, the smaller group that's nested within the larger group where there's about another 28 participants who have signed up and granted us the privilege of stewarding them through their first permaculture design course. And I was chuckling to myself the other day because we run, as far as I know, a very unique PDC. And I was chuckling because I thought, who the heck does this? On a two-week PDC, one thing I'm doing is the group splits, they make a choice and they, they do either a small-scale suburban size design project or in my case, I take them through a larger property the commencement of a of a full-scale design process with 100% real clients on a real property where these clients ha had already reached out before the course actually wanting to engage um, us in a design consultancy capacity and so I'm kind of stewarding this group of about 18 participants through the process of interviewing real clients and then visiting and um, going through the initial overwhelm and um, feeling of what the heck we got ourselves uh, caught up in here um, on the first visit in this case it's a very complex hundred acres with six meter deep erosion gully in one corner and then in a, a complex topography or landform as saddles and hills and all, all kinds of different aspects and valleys and ridges and a um, lot to get your head around and i know and i think everyone in the group knows now too that we are well on track to 
really being able to uh, offer a lot of value to these clients, a lot of it around sharing a, um, a bunch of, of layers that really unpack the uniqueness of this amazing property they're on, as well as supporting them toward articulating their purpose and honing in on a few um, suggested next steps. And we'll also have the bare bones of a, of a concept design um, hybrid in the, in the uh, wordings of that generative transformation work some of you will recall and be familiar with. So that's going on. It's very exciting for me to experience the, the the journey of folk new to design and play around with different ways of of facilitating that. And maybe I'll reflect a bit more on that at the end because um, the chat with Ben gave me uh, clarity on the multi-layeredness that and the nestedness of the different things that are um, evolving and developing within the context of the project. So that's in the foreground. Uh, it'll keep us busy for another week and then I look forward to bringing a bit more focus to phase two where I'm um, going to be putting some questions out there and uh, inviting your input. Big thanks to everyone who's been reaching out, sending messages. It's lovely to feel the degree of resonance of the recent post on coppicing the permaculture tree and moving into phase two, transitioning from the focus on problems to potential. This chat with Ben is going to help us a lot with figuring out what the heck potential even is and what it means. Thanks also to the um, the most recent patrons. We had a couple of people sign up to support the project at patreon.com slash making permaculture stronger. Very, very much uh, appreciated. And the kind of trajectory and nature of that support is one force at play in this situation. It does affect, I guess, how much weight I'm you know, prepared to um, place on the project and energy I'm going to put into it. Right, I think we'll jump right on into the chat with Ben now, and I'll, I'll, as I said, I'll, I'll share some reflections and recaps and whatnot at the end. I am very happy today to be in conversation with Ben Haggard, who I've meeting and talking to here for the first time. Ben is a colleague of people that I've been interviewing recently, including Joel Glansberg, Bill Reed, Carol Samford, and I'm really super excited today to get Ben's uh, perspective and hear about your work, Ben, with um, with this captivating uh, approach, living systems thinking, the regenerative paradigm, uh, regenerative development and design. Probably the best place to start, I figure, is if you wouldn't mind sharing a little of your story and maybe including a, a focus on your relationship with permaculture over the, over the years. So how you came across permaculture, how you got onto it, and then I guess the transition to starting Regenesis, bringing regenerative thinking into your, into your work and where you're at with it all now. So I... Uh... Uh, I grew up in a family business where we were um, growing and, and designing with native plants uh, in the desert southwest of the United States. So I got interested in ecological design really early. And at the same time, I was an organic gardener since the time I was a kid. So I became aware of Mollison and his work, maybe even before he published the first permaculture book or just shortly after because Rodale started featuring him early, early on. And I was aware when the books came out and so on. So it was always sort of there, um, you know, seemed like great stuff, but I wasn't paying that close attention because I was busy mostly working on ecological restoration kind of work. Then in the mid, 80s, I guess it was, uh, a friend of mine had gone and studied with Mollison and invited him to come to Santa Fe, which is where I live. And so I went to a like three or four day workshop with him and he kind of blew my mind. Uh, and I was, I think, ready and looking for something to have my mind blown about. And I got really excited about it and, and then went and studied, 
you know, full-on permaculture course with Mollison in, lost track of what year that would have been, 86 maybe. And I met, uh, Joel Glansberg was in that same course uh, who you've met and um, some other folks who became colleagues over the years. And I, I jumped into it with both feet. Um, primarily I teamed up with uh, Tim Murphy and Vicki Marvick who were in Southern Arizona. And we ended up along with Scott Pittman who was based in Santa Fe forming something called the Permaculture Drylands Institute and really focused on the application of permaculture in the American Southwest. We were interested in drylands everywhere, but especially in the American Southwest, because that's the place that we knew. And um, we spent a number of years teaching and writing and publishing and you know, running, designing. I, I had my own design uh, practice for a number of years, and then I teamed up with Tim Murphy, um, and we continued doing design together and running the institute. So it was classic kind of permaculture, you know, in a, in a period when it was pioneering in the desert Southwest. Um, at some point, uh, during that time, I took on a, a major project called Soli Sombra, which was a, a, a basically an estate that was run as a private retreat center for by invitation. And a lot of people came through solely. It was owned by a wealthy couple and they would invite people in political spheres or business or economics or, you know, uh, doing interesting scientific work and so on to come and have little mini conferences there. And we created a, uh, basically a permaculture kind of botanical garden farm, miniature farm, to demonstrate a number of the technologies, water harvesting and so on, and also um, biological wastewater treatment, which at that time was not, you know, John Todd had done some initial work. And then we worked with Michael Ogden, who was a student of, of John Todd's, who developed what became a kind of standard uh, constructed wetlands uh, technique or technology. Um, and uh, we used this property, Soli Sombra, to do the first significant installation of this technology he'd been inventing. So that in and of itself was really um, influential and interesting. A lot of people came just to see the constructed wetlands technology. At any rate, at the, by the time I finished up with that and I was running a pretty steady teaching schedule, I began to realize that I was bumping up against some kind of limitation in permaculture that I couldn't quite put my finger on. And one of the teams that had come through Soli Sombra was a group called the World Business Academy. And two of the members of that were um, Bob and Pamela Mang, who had moved recently to Santa Fe. And uh, they, got really excited by what we were doing there. They, they weren't familiar with permaculture prior to that and invited me to dinner and we ended up becoming friends and talking quite a bit over the next couple of years about the intersection between what we were doing in permaculture and what they had been doing for many years, applying living systems thinking to organizational design development and change. And that's really, it was out of those conversations that the idea for Regenesis was born. Because what we kept running into 
well, as T Tim and I in particular, as we were working closely together, began to realize that we could do quite sophisticated designs, you know, landscape, land use designs, but that the client systems that we were delivering those designs into weren't able to receive them. They either couldn't understand the design or weren't able to make the constant adaptation and evolution required to live with the design that is intended to adapt and evolve through time. And so we realized that there was a huge gap in terms of the kind of human understanding of um, how ecological systems work and how you need to work with and in them. So that was really the birth of Regenesis. We saw, I saw that this organizational development side of things answered that piece of it because it worked on the evolution of people's thinking and capacity to think ecologically. And what they got excited about was our understanding of actual living systems and how to work with them and how that could inform sort of the other side of it. So we, we put together Regenesis um, initially with the intention of working on development, how human beings inhabit places. So, you know, we thought it would, primarily be about village development and, you know, landscape design and that sort of thing. And for the initial years, that's what it primarily was focused on. And, and over time, we began to realize that um, we started to shift our attention off of developing land to the development of communities, meaning um, we needed to help communities understand where they were, where they were situated in the landscape, um, who they were, what their aspirations were, and then how to pursue those in a way that was harmonious with, you know, the ecological systems that they were part of. And at, at an early point, this would have been, we've been working on this for about 24 years. And um, so at some er midpoint, I'd say, I began to articulate that for myself as, we needed to help communities charter their own development. That at least in the US, and it's probably true where you are, developers tend to be sort of entrepreneurial in nature. You know, they see an opportunity and they pursue it. And the community is kind of a barrier to that opportunity and, you know, applies a restraining force, but basically you know, it's, it's all driven by the developer's desire to do something with land. Uh, and this has meant that the, the occupation, the career of development has become uh, incre increasingly disreputable, you know, and, and puts itself um, increasingly at odds with community values and community needs. And so we were asking, well, what would it take to actually turn that around and get a community to see itself as an evolving organism that needs to develop itself, needs to continually upgrade its infrastructure, but to do that in a way that's coherent and whole and um, in harmony with natural systems. So that the developers were brought back into the fold, if you will. They were working on, be on behalf of communities, not at cross purposes. That was kind of a big concept that shifted my attention and I think our collective attention more towards the community side and away from the land side. Uh, and 
that's when I began to take a really deep dive into trying to understand uh, how do you develop people? Uh, what does it take to actually grow uh, the systemic thinking capability of people, of human beings, uh, as, uh, both as individuals, but also as a collective, what's involved in that. And that's led us down all kinds of really interesting and pretty fruitful paths over the years. At the moment, I'm more immersed in organizational development and organizational change processes as a way of really learning in much greater detail uh, how to do that. Because communities as a role, I, I often think of them as, um, as being uh, not organizational systems, but disorganizational systems. So um, it's, it's much, much trickier. It's much harder to do in a community setting than it is in a formal organization that has a kind of single purpose that it's pursuing and that everyone understands what the ground rules are. Not so for a community. Totally, yeah. With, with organizationally, there's a kind of a, a membrane or a doorway, some sort of filtration to get in there. So there's, there's, a, there's some degree of alignment around purpose, even if it's... Yeah. Could be so, different. you know, it, what it means is that there's a huge amount of work that has to be done around alignment, around purpose, you know, when you're working in a community setting. And, you know, I've worked in communities of work as well as communities of, you know, place. Communities actually situated in a particular place. And uh, in both cases, there's quite a bit of work that needs to be done around, okay, who really are we? What is that membrane that we don't see and talk about that gives us coherence? And how do we um, understand ourselves well enough to be able to evolve? So that's kind of a thumbnail description of how we got to where, we're, where we are now. Mm, beautiful. That's great. I think where you ended, I'd like to um, maybe just pull out a few points, but then come back to that, that question of working with with people, with those questions of who are we, and also who is, as, as Bill phrased it to me once, who is here? What is this place? And I know you've, you've got some amazing value to offer on that front. One little observation I wanted to make was, you must, I mean, I imagine you must feel pretty grateful to have happened to have bumped into Bob and Pamela Mang at that, that moment, just when the questions were starting to arise and you're starting to notice, oh, hang on, clients aren't really able to receive our designs and, and then co-evolve co and adapt with them. That resonated with the point I got to maybe four or five years into to working as a professional permaculture designer, where one of the initial limitations I noticed was my my inability, my lack of literacy in being able to really read people and help them figure out what, and I'm sure that was part of your journey too and something that you've been evolving. The image I got as you were talking about the transition from this idea of the developer versus community, you know, the developers is activating force and the restraining force and it's, you know, they're kind of... The, the conflictually themed nature of the the way the two parties uh, interact to the idea of communities need to be developing <laughs> you know and, and, and in some ways it's like i hadn't thought of this before but in some ways it's like if if that's not happening in a community the developers coming in and having a go in their own way it's it's like an indicator of you know it needs to happen one way or another and I'm excited with this story around, okay, how do we transition that narrative and, and the actual reality into a place where developers are authentically not just chasing a profit, but, but in service of the, of the community and the landscapes. 
Um, yeah, so I'd love to maybe touch on that as we go along. I'm, I'm just starting to work on large developments with developers and um, and so that's very live for me. But yeah, I, I mean, it'd be good to, if you've any, got any comments on what I just said, but I'd love you to just share a little, little bit more about kind of where you're at and where you've gotten to with, I guess, the, the, the real gold that you've discovered and that you've tested over time in terms of sitting in those questions of who are we when working with people and, and, what, and who is this place? Anything you, you're happy to share there? I know that's going to be of, of interest and, and value for... Well, let me try and tie a couple of those thoughts together. Okay, brilliant. Um, so on the one hand, there's the question of who are we? Then there's the question of how do you develop in harmony with that, and, uh, which raises the question of what is development anyway? So one way of understanding the word development, uh, one way of deriving it, uh, is um, that it has to do with removing the veils from something. The development is actually the practice of revealing and manifesting what's inherent um, in the form of potential in any living entity. Right? So what it means to develop the land or to develop ourselves or to develop a family or a community or a business, to develop anything is to sort of remove anything that isn't connected to its actual core potential and nature and um, bring that potential forward in a way that allows it to become increasingly of value and increasingly connected to uh, its larger context, the large system that it's part of. So this is pretty consistent with permaculture thinking, although it's not always called out all that explicitly, that uh, when we are talking about developing a piece of land or a garden or a farm or something like that, what we're attempting to do is discover its, its nature, its character, and get that to manifest in some way that allows us to live, live there and live in harmony with it. So that's the starting point, is to understand what development really is. Uh, if we want to transform the field of development uh, and understand that the development of the land, the development of housing, the development of agricultural or forestry or other kinds of potential is the same process as the development of the people who are going to live in that landscape and manage it and grow with it and learn from it through time. So one of the things that I, I know that you're interested in is this idea of place source potential, which is a term that we use to talk about the ground or starting point for the thinking that we do. Um, so place source potential probably loosely corresponds to the idea of um, site analysis, like the McCargian overlays that Bill Mollison used to recommend where you're, you're seeing how the soils and the movement of various flows, water and air and cold and so on, and the sun move through a site in a way that um, reveals what's possible there and what the limitations are. Yeah. What we though do is we try and look deeper into that analysis. What we're really looking to do is try and understand 
well, on one level, how this particular site is related to some larger system. Right? So one of the, this early on in our permaculture design practice, it became really obvious that the legal boundaries and the actual ecological boundaries are never the same thing, right? And so it's not possible or appropriate to do a site analysis um, based on legal boundaries. You have to look at the actual, what are the actual conditions that's going on, you know? So the first question that we always wrestle with is how big is the site? What are we talking about? And then the second question is how, how big is the system that it's occupying, that it's, that it's sit, nested within? Uh, because then we can have some sense of what is the purpose or the possible contribution that this site could make to the health of the larger system. And by extension, how that larger system, if it is healthier, can make a contribution to the larger systems that it sits within. So we're always thinking in terms of nested holes. This is pretty fundamental to how permaculture works. The trick is to not have it limited only to physical flows, right? How do you think about it in terms of um, social dynamics, cultural dynamics? How do you think of it in terms of meaning uh, and psychology? How do you think of it in terms of economics and so on? How do all of those dynamics come into our thinking about this relationship between the work we want to do in a particular place uh, how that fits within its contexts and how those contexts fit within larger contexts. So potential, uh, if I'm thinking that way, has to do with the inherent nature of something, in this case, a site or a landscape. Who is it? What is its unique character? And what is being called from it at this particular historical and evolutionary moment. So if we accept that um, change is a given, it's kind of constant, uh, and that we're on a continuously changing and evolving planet, then the potential of anything that we're working on needs to relate to what's happening in that given moment. So, um, so you've got these, this tension between what's inherent, what is the nature of something, of you or me, for example, uh, and then what's being called for, uh, how that, how that um, inherent character relates to what's being called for in the current moment, right? There's something very temporal, constantly changing of the moment happening in relationship to something that's relatively unchanging. Uh, that tension is what I think of as potential. What this is not, having spent many years in the, in the land development universe, what this potential is not is me coming in and saying, gee, you know, there's a site right next to a major arterial road. I think it's, it has high, high potential for a gas station. Right? <laughs> <laughs> it, that may be true in terms of like the momentary context, but it's almost certainly not true in terms of the inherent internal characteristic of that place. Mm -hmm. uh, 
And so, and it's not even that I'm objecting to the idea of gas stations, right? Um, it, you know, if we're going to have them, they have to go somewhere. The question is, you know, how does this particular place want to express itself? What's, what's inherent to it? And that's the place sourced part of it. Mm. Yeah, this is great. I might, at some point, I might just recap because I think it's a pretty amazing idea. Recap it to make sure I've got my head around it properly. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah I, please I, go ahead. Okay, yeah, yeah. I, I'll just, I'll, I'll just get a few things off my chest because when you said it's the same process with respect to once you ask, you got to the point where the question in front of you was what is development, and you initially talked talked about that as the idea of re revealing and manifesting potential, and then that sounded like I guess a realization you had along the way that this is not. A different process as you move from you know working with ecosystems or wetlands to businesses to, to human beings and i think that's a pretty big realization you know that that it's the same thing whether i'm developing myself or i'm developing this landscape or developing my business or my family there's some i don't know if you want to say deep universals but it, it, it's, it's not you don't go you don't need necessarily to go to entirely different books and courses or something like that so i, I just wanted to emphasize that because I, I feel like that's a it's a realization I can relate to also. It's like, holy shit, this stuff applies to anything. I don't need to learn 10 different, yeah. Um, and then moving on to this idea of potential as the tension or the dynamic interplay or whatever you call it between what's inherent to a thing and what's called for in the moment. I'd, I'd never thought of it in those terms before. I really love that. I guess one question I'd have is, is the what's called for in the moment in terms of identifying potential that relates to the the nests with, that the thing sits within. So you, you, you're getting a conversation started. And I also, uh, those, wo those words purpose and character too, I love you using those in the context of landscapes because you know, I, I don't know if that happens so much in, in permaculture. We, we, we ask what the, what's the purpose to some degree. I think it's often mm -hmm. possible to deepen that conversation. What's the purpose of the people? And of course you get some feel for their character, but to sit with that question alongside all the analysis and um, mapping and measuring and digging and all that, what's the character of this place? and then moving to its purpose. Does that all resonate with what you're saying? Kind of yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's interesting just to pick up that last thought. I think this is the same as the earlier thought, which is these things apply across systems. It's mm -hmm. one of the things that we started out really, really trying to discover and understand is what is it that allows you to link the development of people and the development of, of the landscape. Mm. One of the reasons we chose place as the central organizing principle in our work is because place in English, at least, is one of the only words in the entire language that contains both. Right. And it contains the physical landscape, the ecological processes, the human, social, cultural, infrastructure all of that stuff is contained within this concept of place otherwise you're we're always dividing nature and, and human yeah yeah and then forever struggling to get them back together again yeah totally that's so much the trick is we don't realize on so many different levels culturally that that we've torn things apart and then we're faced with this ultimately this false problem of how do we bring these things back together and we'd start talking about interaction and re relationships and integrate not separate as opposed to how do we approach the thing well, we don't tear it apart in the first place. And you're saying that the word place has that kind of ability. It's, that's brilliant. Wow. Yeah. And then you go underneath that. And what is the meaning of a given place is a somewhat alien concept in Western thinking. 
from my limited exposure to um, indigenous people and their thinking that, um, that this is not a conflict, that they understand places as living beings. And this is a fundamental orientation that we also hold, that um, it is possible for me to describe the character of a place in much the same way I would describe the character of a human being, because it is a living being, it's a living entity. And so it too has a purpose. Uh, it too has a history and a destiny. And so from an indigenous perspective, it too has stories that um, help me understand how to be in appropriate relationship with it. So this is, you know, if we go back to figuring out where to put the gas station, uh, this is the part that gets missed, right? When, when people are developing the landscape is the recognition that I'm coming into a negotiation, coming into a um, conversation with a living being. Uh, and that I am not, uh, again, it's this separation of people and nature thing. I am not inherently an evil or a destructive force in the landscape. I have the potential to be an incredibly beneficial, contributing, developmental force. Uh, if I understand, first of all, if I understand it well enough, and second of all, if I have enough humility to approach it carefully, thoughtfully through time. Hmm. Again, I think it's very consistent with permaculture thinking, right? The idea that we're not, that we actually can contribute to ecological systems. Uh, we have to continually remind ourselves that that's what we're doing and not simply putting in permaculture branded, you know, design features. <laughs> uh, Don't get me started about that. Yeah, yeah, me either. <laughs> <laughs> so let's see. I, I don't know if I'm, I'm definitely not following a nice clear line, but um, hopefully the picture I'm painting is starting to hang together more. Mm, this uh, is great. One thing I didn't, mention that you said earlier that struck me too is this idea that a key part of development is not what do we need to add but what do we need to take away the idea of what stuff here is in the way I, and I, I mean I, I I'm guessing that inside of that idea is the idea that um, living beings part of what's inherent to them is the I don't know if you say the desire or the, the want or the you know, they don't, they don't want to stagnate. I mean, that's life is. It's growing and evolving all the time. And if you get can get so the blocks and the, the debris and all the stuff out of the way, that um, you don't necessarily need to then, you know, put any kind of energy in. The thing's got its own energy. And something like a coiled spring. Or, no, a spring is a mechanical um, analogy. Let's not go there. But, uh, yeah, I, I love that you mentioned that. That really relates to me as, what, as well as asking what can we bring to the situation? What can we take away? And often the thing, often what needs to be taken away are mental constructs, mm. our, our assumptions, beliefs, projections, and so on about uh, what's actually happening in a particular place. Uh, our attachments, probably most of all. Yeah, yeah. One distinction I'm learning from Carol and your other colleagues that seems to be very foundational in living systems thinking is a distinction between mental models and frameworks. And I, I had had the idea, if you, if you wouldn't mind in your language, how do you introduce that distinction to people? Because, I mean, obviously that must be what you're doing when the, when the person, let's say a developer approaches and you say, hey, we found some land, we want to put a petrol station on it. How do you start to 
pull the mental models out and introduce that distinction in an, in an accessible way. Mm-hmm. Well, I think of a mental model as being like a recipe, right? It's certain steps that you repeat every time. Yeah. And so it tends to be hyper-functional. For me, a framework is working on the underlying structure of thinking itself. So for me, a living system framework either helps me understand the structure of my thinking or helps me evolve the structure of my thinking. Mm -hmm. The framework can either help me see what's coherent in what I'm doing or help me see what's missing or what's causing it to be incoherent. Mm -hmm. And frameworks, there are lots of different orders of framework. They can go from quite simple to enormously complex. So uh, a, a simple framework is the framework of wholeness. It's a surprisingly slippery concept. You know, what, what exactly do we mean when we say something is whole? How are we conceptualizing it to be able to think of it as whole and single, singular? I had an insight about this somewhere in the last few years where I realized that my training, even through all the years of the permaculture work, my training has always been to think of something as whole through the way I was adding things together, that we're more holistic because we've added more stuff to it, Uh, which is a fundamentally non-whole way of looking at things. Yeah. And I finally, so I just, I kept addressing myself to that. What is it that I'm doing that's causing me to continuously see a whole as an, um, a composite or an agglomeration of parts. What's going on there? And I finally realized that I needed to, sh- it was like shifting sides of my brain or something. I needed to simply turn that off and accept that whatever was in front of me had a right to be. And so if I think of a person, for example, a friend, that instead of, if I want to think of them in terms of their wholeness, I have to stop thinking of them in terms of their characteristics and only see them as a being with the right to be. And the minute I shift into that mode, then they are whole in my mind. And all of their contradictions and all of the things that make them lovable and impossible and so on, it doesn't matter, right? They simply are. Yeah. Yeah. It's very hard to articulate. It is, um, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> it's not all that hard to do if we can get ourselves to sort of shift the mind into a place of simply accepting and seeing something as it is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Then we can go through and look at all the parts and pieces, right? That's a different activity. Yeah. Yeah. So that for me is an example of framework thinking you know, the sort of seeing to the singularity or unity of something um, versus uh, any kind of mental model. What would I do? I'd say a a mental model is, you know, uh, they are a person, therefore they eat, drink, and excrete, and I don't know. Mm -hmm. It's like I, I wouldn't even know how to bring a mental model to that process. To clarify, so the the framework there is is the framework the distinction between encountering a person as whole versus a you know as as a as a bunch of parts, or or is the mental model more 
it is, is an example of a mental model seeing things at you know trying to make see holes as parts as opposed to um, framing them as as a whole well I think I'll, I'll give you an example um, I hope this is feels relevant to your audience but my training before all of this my training was as a painter and so uh, and I came through a very particular school of study that was working really hard to disassemble the mental model approach, right? So there are mental models that people bring to painting, for example, of a portrait, right? And how do you kind of get the right relationships, you know, of the various parts of the face and the body and so on? And how do you sort of arrange that in a canvas and so on? There, you know, it's a technique. Uh, and you can learn the technique and you can learn to get skin color and so on. So um, the approach that I learned was kind of the opposite of that. And it had to do with going directly into the perceptual experience and having the parts disappear. That uh, if I'm really seeing, what I'm really seeing is if I'm seeing without uh, abstract conceptualization being imposed on the act of seeing, then what I'm seeing is light, dark, cool, warm, red, blue, you know, I'm seeing, I'm seeing pure visual sensation. And when I can contact that direct perception, um, then what happens is painting that's much more alive Right. much more vibrant, much more filled with the actual energy yeah. of the experience of seeing. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. There's two very different traditions in the world of painting. Mm. Um, so for me, one is a mental model approach. It's like a technique. You do this, 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 and this. Yeah. It's a recipe, yeah, a sequence of steps that you repeat. Like exactly. yeah. yeah, right. And the other has to do with really altering me. Mm. And my uh, my ability to open to an actual perceptual experience as it's happening. So I don't know if that answered your question, but um, to me, the work with frame it's very easy to turn a framework into a mental model. Mm -hmm. Super easy. Right. Yep. Because the core has to do with uh, actually being able to observe myself perceiving, right, and observe myself, uh, observe how I'm perceiving and what is the um, level of um, complexity that I'm able to actually manage in that state of perceiving. Mm -hmm. Along those lines, I, I, a question that comes up for me is. I don't know if you, you'll be able to relate to this looking back when you were first getting into this, because I'm, I'm diving in about as fast and deep as I can at the moment. I'm part of Carol's change agent community for this part of the world. And I've spent a lot of time um, grilling Bill and Joel and, you know, and reading and all the rest. And um, at times I notice a kind of uh, a frustration. I get, I feel pissed off because it's like, I, and I think part of what's happening is it's almost like I had a, I don't know if you call it a meta mental model, but, I'll have a mental model identified and it'll be this framework that, that's alive and helps me see things I didn't see before and it's exciting. And then I'm just starting to get comfortable with that and I'm realizing probably what's happening is it's starting to congeal into a mental model. And of course, at that moment, right. one of these characters introduces another framework 
and just as I was starting to get attached to the last one, and then another one and another one, and I'm getting to, there's so many goddamn frameworks. I'm never gonna, you know, that's sort of part of the point. And I'm starting to get this realization or this sense that there's a there's a way of being or something along those lines that that's underneath the frameworks that generates the frameworks, and you can't just yes. you can't just go there. That's a that's going to take years and decades to. Um, arrive at and so telling myself that has relaxed me a bit and yeah hold them lightly as you're talking before i had the idea of a, a kind of a trellis that a, a vine or something grows up and you know and, and as soon as it's strong enough with the benefit of the trellis to hold its own weight let, let the trellis fall away you know and, and find the next something along those lines um yeah, yeah. i mean I don't, I don't know if that that works but well, I think what you're describing, I have different metaphors for it. Again, you have to speak metaphorically about this stuff. It's about an inner experience. Yeah. But there's the kind of, uh, it, there's a quality of free fall in it. Right? Yes. The minute you try and get everything to like stop moving, you know, and be static and, you know, yeah. objectified and intelligible and I've got it now, you've sort of dropped out of the actual experience. Yeah. Yep. That the, the real experience is one of seeing the world arise, seeing it emerge, uh, and seeing yourself emerge with it, right? That you are not a finished product. You are continually evolving. You have enormous potential. Mm -hmm. Each of us has enormous potential to grow and develop our ability to understand the world um, and to understand complexity and to work with it and to understand one another, all of those things are, um, you know, there's, there isn't an end point. That, and so that it is a kind of basic orientation to the world and to life. And for me, this did get launched with the work in permaculture, right? To me, all of the questions that I'm still working on and caring so deeply about our questions that arose from starting to work in permaculture. Mm -hmm. um, it, so for me, permaculture raised the questions, but it didn't have the instruments I needed to be able to, to work on them. And uh, if, if I were to offer uh, a critique of permaculture, and the, you know, I worked originally with Mollison, so I got to observe him quite a bit over the years firsthand. He was in his own way, an incredibly flexible, kind of brilliant thinker. But he wasn't always as flexible or brilliant in the way he articulated. And so one of the things that I believe about permaculture is that it is too functional. That its limitation yeah, within, the, within the functional world, it's quite sophisticated or has the potential to be. It's not everybody uses it in a sophisticated way, but. Um, the whole idea of, of pattern, patterning, uh, understanding flow, dynamics and change and sort of working all of that stuff. It's all, you know, completely the basis for how Regenesis is working and thinking. Um, the problem was it limited itself to function and that left out questions of, for example, meaning uh, and potential and what is the overall purpose um it, it made it you know all of us would have to uh invent answers to those questions for ourselves and i think people do but um there wasn't a comparable technology for working on how do we make meaning right 
or how do we understand the the evolutionary trajectory of something and um, how do we how do we integrate across all of these disciplines to be able to pursue that evolutionary trajectory those kinds of questions yeah yeah, um, yeah. which have to do with and and most important how do you awaken the will to do that so in my experience permaculture which is probably the teaching has probably evolved a lot since I was a permaculture teacher, but um, uh, it was done through a kind of conversion experience. You put everybody together in a retreat center or a room or something, you know, you build up a lot of energy and um, you know, people go out and they want to change the world. Um, but that's an event, right? And then people go back and, um, they they find that there's a, a disjunct between the lives and the and the careers that they've been building and this kind of amazing conversion experience they've just had and um it, you know it's problematic for any number of reasons you know it doesn't it doesn't allow people the direct path to be able to go back and work from whatever it is they're trying to do to bring value into the world. It, it basically says there's this way to bring value into the world and you sort of have to move yourself to it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so, um, yeah, I think there's a lot of work to be done in, you know, going back to the originating impulse in permaculture rather than the the mental models right <laughs> oh, this how is, do you go back? yeah totally. what was what was the originating and creative yeah, impulse that mm -hmm. caused permaculture arise and how do you sort of work forward from there i've been out of it for so long that you know I, i'm speaking to an experience i had 20 some odd years ago right i have no idea really what's moving and shaking now mm. among people who are really trying to to be at the cutting edge of permaculture yeah well i, I mean i i don't know if i'm sorry to tell you but you know i consider myself relatively tuned into at least a portion of you know i'm in conversations with people around the world every week and based on that's my sample not, not a lot has changed there which gives me pause for thought um, and you know, I'm really excited to hear you saying this stuff because this is totally. These are two critical critical places that I'm beginning to focus my energy. I've just had a big uh, transition in, in this project where I, where I started out problem solving. Oh, there's this limitation. There's this blockage. There's this problem. And I've just undergone the whole uh, transformation to to not just saying it, but really moving my whole framing into a space of potential. Where the, the question that comes up pretty early in that conversation is. I like, I hadn't phrased it that way, the originating impulse, you know, I, you know, I've been talking about the thing about the, the core idea or, you know, the, the thing that it was that permaculture germinated out of and, yeah. and what was that? That's what you're trying to regenerate. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, that's going to involve, yeah. Yeah. And, and that's going to involve going back to that pruning, right? And, and, and a lot I'm realizing too, yeah, a lot of it is pruning away the mental models. And one of them that I've been struggling to, to um, bring into the foreground is, is mental model around design process. And I, I like the way that you defined it as a recipe of steps that you repeat, because that's what it's become. Um, and, and of course, that particular, those particular steps have their place and all that kind of stuff. But to, to latch onto those as, as the thing, as opposed to one 
um, potential way of sometimes realizing that originating impulse. And another huge thing that resonates, I've just really discovered this on a whole new level because I'm starting to hold space for a community of practice. And I'm, I'm working with this very simple, I guess it's a, I hope it's a framework, but the idea of a community of interest in permaculture. And, we, and you have that conversion experience. You become interested or more interested. You do the permaculture design course. I've realized that doesn't take you from interest to practice. It takes you from interest to, interested to more interested. And there's, there's this barrier that like exactly what you say, permaculture can land as, oh, well, it's a completely different direction. So you're like, how the hell do I incorporate into what I'm doing now? And, I'm, you know, and, and how do I make that? And I'm hearing this from a lot of people and realizing that, um, that that's, a, that's a pinch point. Or it's a place where potential is being held back. And I want to, I want to put energy into that, into, into supporting people to keep taking those steps. I mean, one, one high level question I'm conscious where I don't want to keep you for too much longer is, and I love the way you, your language around permaculture and, and the, just the, the affection, you know, I, I sense affection in you when you talk about it and the, and the deep gratitude. Yet you, like you say, you've been out of the loop. You, you, you're, gratitude, you're grateful for it as, as something that's kind of gave you questions that have taken you in amazing directions. I, I, maybe it's hard for you to answer because you haven't been so much involved for the last few decades. The, the question is around, it's one that I'm sitting with at some level because I'm, I'm pouring a lot of my life force here into permaculture where I'm attempting to, because it's already there. It's a global movement. Mo movement. People are so excited and well-intentioned and there's so many, you know, beautiful, positive aspects to it. And yet there are these um, aspects that where I think its potential is, is at risk or it's not, it's not a given thing. And so, of course, there is the urge and many, many people I know in permaculture, including to some extent Ethan Solviev, who, who you know, you know, have similarly started out and been these really bright shining lights in permaculture and then basically left um, realizing that it wasn't meeting their needs. And, and sometimes I'm looking at myself thinking, am I, am, I the, <laughs> am I the dummy who thinks he can make, make a change here? Is it time for me to say thanks very much? I'm off to follow my own path. Um, anyway, I don't know if you have a perspective on that. I, I can say a couple things maybe. Again, you're asking me questions I haven't really thought that much about. So yeah. that's great. Love it. But, um, one of the things that I'll, I'll tell you this, looking at it from the other direction, which is right. I was long enough in the permaculture world and deeply embedded in it enough that um, I came to sort of assume it or understand it as a kind of baseline. And to this day, I'm still shocked when I encounter a team of people on a development project or an organization project, whatever it is, that don't have a basic understanding of natural systems and how they work. I mean, it's shocking to me. I, I just literally forget. And so uh, one of the things permaculture does is it opens up that understanding of the world as flow, right? The world is being yeah. dynamic, um, built around relationship and exchange, you know, uh, and that's really, I mean, it's missing in a lot of our kind of fundamental education. Um, so that's one of the things I'm so deeply appreciative of. It, I mean, I had a feel for it since I spent my life kind of in landscape and so on. But um, permaculture gave me a language for it, way of conceptualizing it, methods and so on. Um, but I think that the, it, it's something to hang out with and think about, but I think that the ceiling on permaculture where it fundamentally runs into itself 
is that it has limited itself to understanding function only. And everything that isn't functional gets dumped into these very loosely defined categories around um, invisible structures and that kind of stuff. It's like, yeah. well, there is this, uh, we should be able to think about psychology in these terms. We should be able to think about human dynamics in these terms, but do we really know how to? Uh, and for me, it's because it's, if, if, if I think of function being and will as different dimensions, right, then, then we've got a one-dimensional frame of reference if we're working purely in function. Right? And so I, without in any way critiquing or dismantling what permaculture is, I think it could deepen itself by addressing its attention to these other two dimensions as well, being and will. I mean, mm. it would be uh, a very sort of quick path to enriching something that I have a lot of value for. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's great. You know, what exactly that means, you know, needs some work and thought. But I, I think that that's, you know, if I, were, if I were to look at it diagnostically, that's the first thing I would put my attention on. Yeah, yeah, that's really helpful. We, we explored function being well in the context of aligning around purpose and purpose statements in, a, in one of the conversations with Bill Reed. Um, so I'll be sure to give people a link back to that if you want to um, brush up on that. And be, I, I, lo- I love that. This has been very, very helpful for me personally. I trust it's been useful for other um, listeners also. The originating impulse and the, yeah, this question of, what would it mean to consciously explore bringing being and will into into the mix? Wow. <laughs> yes. Well, yeah. I'll, I'm going to consciously, uh, uh, you know, wrap things up here. I think um, I've, I have. There's more questions. I will, I'll probably hit you up again for for another chat at some point. Yeah. Some of the things you said around that distinction between, as you were talking about at the time, I had this idea that, I, and I noticed this when I started permaculture and its site analysis. You, you think you're just there kind of taking in the site, but you're, you're actually, your mind is running out in all these different directions and chopping it up and there's all this stuff going on. Um, and it's hard to catch the whole. It's hard to catch the character and the purpose and the inherent quality in these things. And, and that brings in questions around being and feeling and getting and sensing all to be explored exactly. another time. Um, ben, where, if people are interested in, if A, people are interested in, in finding out about your stuff and B, you're interested in having them, you know, I'm sniffing or looking around. Do you want to say a bit about websites or, or, or I know you have your part uh, yeah. of the, the online course, the regenerative or partially online slash offline. Oh yeah. Thanks. Um, so the, I, I always encourage people to go check out our website at Regenesis, which is www.regenesisgroup.com. Uh-huh. Um, because there's an, there's several things there. There's some uh, short videos that kind of give you an overall feel for what we do. There's an archive with uh, written materials and published materials. And um, so it's a great place to dig a little bit deeper into all this crazy stuff we talk about. There's the book that Pamela Mang and I wrote together called Regenerative Development and Design. And then there is uh, the Regenerative uh, Genesis Institute for Regeneration, which is hosting a series of courses, um, the most useful or the, the introductory course being the regenerative practitioner. So it's a great way to take the permaculture skills and practices or any professional practice that people in your audience have and look at how to, use, how to work that through a regenerative framework. 
And we do them now in various places all over the world, including down in Australia and New Zealand. So, you know, if people really are interested, that's the, a place to go for the next step. Fantastic. I'll make sure I have links to all those things. Um, another sure. another thing that came up, I'd love to um, have links to or hear you talk about some some applications, you know, some examples of what, what does it look like to articulate purpose or the inherent quality of a place? But for now, Ben, I'll yeah, say well, thank you very much. I've really, really, I've gotten a lot out of this. I've really enjoyed our conversation. So thanks for making the time and for all the work you've been doing. And, and hopefully this is the beginning of a, an ongoing conversation. Yeah, it's certainly a good wake up. Okay. <laughs> That's thank right. You. Yeah, yeah it's, it's morning for you over there in Berlin. And I'm, I'm about to go and put some kids to bed. Great. All okay. right. Thanks, Ben. Cheers. Thanks so much. Catch you later. Ciao. Wow, how crazy on point was that? Far out. So I'm going to share a few reflections now, and these are reflections I've had um, over, you know, I've had a bit over a week since the conversation. I want to let you know that. So if you want to have your own reflections before you hear mine, before you're tarnished and biased by my ones, then hit pause or um, you know get off the get off this podcast right now, or or I'm about to share mine with you. You make the right choice for you. So. I wrote down some reflections in the show notes and I'll I'll read from those and add a few extra comments no doubt as we go along. So I wrote there that this episode catalyzed waves of reflection that are blowing my mind. Yes, I was struck with the profound clarity and depth of what Ben shared. Then the sheer resonance of the relevance to exactly where making permaculture stronger is at. Well, that pretty much knocked me off my seat. You could say I'm still climbing back up off the floor. I don't know about you, dear listener, but I have a real sense that this conversation is itself a nodal intervention in making permaculture stronger's ongoing evolution. It's like I can feel the energy shifting and growing and generatively transforming throughout my entire being and hence the being of this project, not to mention the sense that will is awakening. I mean, I use the terms potential and development. Who doesn't? And before this chat, I would have said that I had a fairly clear, coherent grasp on what they are. Not anymore. I was almost dazzled by the clarity Ben gives these terms in a way that resonates deep in my bones. Then, when he spoke about the idea of permaculture's originating impulse, well, game over. Let me pen a few reflections on each of these three ideas. Potential, development, and permaculture's originating impulse. So, the respective potential, after decades of experience and reflection... Uh, in collaboration with a tight-knit community of practice, as in Regenesis Group, as we had just heard, Ben's reached this fascinating perspective on what potential is. And as, as I understood him, he sees the potential or the possible contribution of something as existing in the tension between that thing's deep, enduring, inherent nature and the ever-changing reality of the context in which it's nested and in particular what this context calls for in this particular historical and evolutionary moment, in his words. So, to identify the potential of a farm, garden, person, family, business, organisation, blog project, whatever, we need to ask, what's uh, one, what's the unique character of this being? Then, two, what is currently called for in the immediate, local and greater holes it's nested within? And then three, of course, what could happen here that would harmonise these two things? Which brings us to development. Clearly potential often remains latent and undeveloped. For Ben, development 
is then, following on from what he said about potential, it is the practice of actually revealing and manifesting the potential inherent in something, which involves removing anything in the way, you know, anything blocking that revealing and manifesting, and becoming more and more relevant and valuable to the thing's context as it develops. And I mean, I probably don't need to spell out the, the connection there with the introduction, or the, clo- the closing of part three of three of the introduction to phase two of making permaculture stronger, where I coppice the permaculture tree. The whole volition there was there's this stuff um, that to me is, is just too unwieldy and it's cluttering my ability to, to reveal, let alone support the manifestation of what I see as permaculture's potential or that portion of permaculture's potential that I do believe is is currently latent. So that kind of, you know, it's like, oh my god, <laughs> did he really just say that? And I'm pretty sure he didn't know about, I'm pretty sure he doesn't bless him, he does other cool stuff, he doesn't spend his spare time reading the Making Permaculture Stronger blog. Oh yeah, I said I'd, earlier that I'd share how some of this thinking is informing where I'm at in guiding a design team on the current permaculture design course we're running through this 100 acre property and this lovely family that's living there and it gets kind of crazy because at the same time I'm inviting myself to bring awareness to the fact that I am working with the um, this particular group of participants who are getting cutting their teeth on this, this approach to design process and that group had you know the, the the that group has its own integrity its own character so part of what I'm trying to do is support the group as a whole to um, express that character um, um, in a way that's relevant to the permaculture design course and to these clients, this landscape. So that's one form of uh, potential that's being developed. Another form is that each individual participant, of course, is unique as their own character. And to what extent can the process be held so that that unique character of each participant is able to be drawn out and and meet um, be in conversation with the context it sits within, so develop of, of that potential. Then, of course, we've got the client group as a whole, the family, and the individuals. Same thing applies. I I'm, have my own role, and of course, I have my own uniqueness. And to what extent am I being becoming more alive and, and able to express my uniqueness, develop my potential in a way that's relevant to this context? There's the hundred acres we're working on, where the same thing applies. And then there's the kind of local socio-ecological landscape that sits within the, the larger water or life shed that sits within, which, by the way, includes 700 acres of, of land owned by the, the same family. So to what degree is what we're doing on the 100 acres with these people consistent with supporting that larger, some thousands of acres, to, um, to express its character in a, in a way that's relevant to its wider context and then focusing on that wider context, so the larger um, region of many, many farms and, and different um, watersheds and forests and, and, and so on. And so sit, sitting with all that, I mean, you can't take it all on at once, or I can't anyway, but it, it, it lets me ask a lot of really great questions and find opportunities to increase the, well, to increase regeneration. Now let's move on to this idea of the originating impulse. And I'm going to uh, replay this little section here where he talks about that. I, li- I like I hadn't phrased it that way. The originating impulse. You know, I, you know, I've been talking about the thing about the the core idea, or you know, the the thing that it was that permaculture germinated out of, and yeah. and 
what was that? That's what they're trying to regenerate. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, that's going to pr- Yeah. I mean, there it is. You, you, if you listen again, you can hear in the background, he said, this original impulse, or what I call the core idea or whatever, this is what you're trying to regenerate. And then he goes on to say, as I kind of speak over him or vice versa, um, that is a regenerative process. And so that was a magical moment in our conversation, identifying that what I'm, what I've been feeling toward and, and, and am attempting to do with phase two of making permaculture stronger is regenerate um, from permaculture's originating impulse, the creative originating impulse. And that is where we're going to be heading next, or very soon anyway. So I'd invite you to start reflecting on that question. And just to give you a little hint, it's nothing to do with the ethics um, or the, even the principles, which I think we can sort of default to in an autopilot sort of way. Oh, yeah, the core of permaculture is, yeah, you know, they're foundational. They're not the originating impulse. They came later on. What, were the, what was the core uh, impulse, the thing, as, as one uh, reader asked, am I going to go all the way back to the acorn? And I like that idea of, if you think of the permaculture tree, what was the acorn? What was the core um, idea or concept or inkling that um, permaculture then germinated out of? I'll, sit you, I'll leave you sitting with that and look forward to exploring it more with you and inviting your input on that uh, in the coming um, posts. Uh, there's links to Regenesis Group. It's regenesisgroup.com um, and the, you can navigate to the Regenerative Practitioner Training and I have a link to the chat with Bill Reed which was episode 23, um, where we get into that distinction between function, being, and will. And I loved how Ben talked about these three, if you think of function, being, and will as three dimensions of existence or whatever, um, then in a very strong focus on function, permaculture has has had a certain one dimensionality. So it's another question. Uh, So many questions, right? And the questions are beautiful things, Not not to rush away from too quickly, but what would it mean for function, being, and will to to evolve together um, within permaculture. So much to explore in the future. I wish you well. Hit up makingpermaculturestronger.net to catch up on the latest comments, posts, and all that stuff. And I guess I'll be catching you in episode 31. Ciao, ciao.